2: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling tales for dark. Good evening, listener, you're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about sinister studies and dire dreams. I'm your host for the evening friend, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of N.M. Brown and Kitty Olsen is voice talent Justine Anastasia. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark our first tale of the evening is written by the mother of our very own network n m brown and is performed by justine anastasia In it, we'll meet a woman who is surrounded by the cycles of life. She returns to her late mother's estate with her own baby girl in tow. If this story teaches anything, it's that a mother's love can either be a blessing or a curse. Without further ado, I present to you Terror Nights.
0: The scent of gunpowder and rust overwhelmed my airway as my mother fell over the top of my crib. My lungs screamed with terror as the doll in my crib re-cocked the gun. This time, my dream self was able to do something about it. All I could hear through my screams was the internal voice of Uma Thurman. Wiggle your big toe. That's just what I did. Inching the maniacal entity towards me and away from my mother, now slouched and bleeding on the floor. She... It may have been an absolute asshole, but I was still at least 5 to 10 times its size. As terrified as I was, I attempted to wrench the gun from her nubby hands. After holding it so tightly, it let the gun go too damn fast. A burst exploded in my ears, and the smell of gunpowder refreshed itself as if on an air freshener timer. The color of crimson bloomed through my shirt in a perfect circle as pain consumed my chest. Then I woke up. Society, psychology, and even grade school teachers dictate that we shouldn't play favorites. I mean, sure, inanimate objects are fine, songs, TV shows, ice cream flavors, etc. but it's common knowledge that it's not nice to have favorite parents, grandparents, children especially, and so on. If someone has a favorite, that could leave open to interpretation to mean everyone else isn't good enough. However, as we know, It's all bullshit. Everyone has a favorite person, and I was my mother's. I don't mean that she loved me more than other children. That went without saying. The point I'm trying to make is that she preferred me over everyone. More than lovers, mentors, family members, etc. Sadly, I resented her for it. While she wanted to recreate our own little version of Grey Gardens, I wanted a life for myself. After all... That was the natural order of things women have children and raise them to have families of their own someday something that seemed worse than a death sentence to my mother livy i'm sure in the back of her mind she wanted happiness for me she wasn't a bad mother after all i think losing my dad really got to her from what i was told she was six months pregnant with little old me when she opened the door to two solemn looking deputies one day She said the pit of dread she felt reached all the way inside the pit of her soul when she saw them. They confirmed her worst fear. My father had been found dead. Police explained what had happened, but my mother was in such shock that it took her days to understand it. My dad was on a job to repossess a vehicle when he ran into a man at the end of his rope. The man pleaded with my father for just three more days with the vehicle, to no avail. It turned out the man was at the end of a two day run with the law. He fled the scene of a hit and run in the very car my father was supposed to repossess. I guess he hadn't had time to properly clean it to destroy the evidence. The man had been fighting with whether or not to turn himself in the entire night before and my father's presence was the final sign. In the inevitability of the situation, the man became desperate and pulled a gun. My mom didn't know if the shot was intentional or just the result of jittery hands from adrenaline. But in the end, the result was the same anyway. And of course, as these things do, I was born almost the spitting image of him. My mother resolved to hold on to the only living piece of him she had left, and that was that. Some of my fondest childhood memories were the picnics she used to take us on. She used to sit on the ground with me leaning over me to smother me with tickles so light they felt like drizzles of rain. Her hair would fall around me, consuming me in the scent of honeysuckle and strawberry. My mother was my perfumed superhero. Normal children had stuffed animals or blankets to bring them comfort. But for me, my mother's scent was home. Years of formative childhood flew by before I realized that my mommy was different from other mommies all of my friend's mother's smiles reached their eyes while mine didn't. She became rigid with visible discomfort when I played with other children. I don't mean that she was a helicopter mom. I mean that she got this look on her face like she'd stepped on a banana peel stuffed with cat shit or something. She'd never let me attend sleepovers or hold them at the house. Not only that, She would cry about not wanting to be alone when I asked her to go to simple things, like birthday parties, even if they were in the most public of places. It wasn't long before I realized that though she loved me, she was more afraid of being alone than she was of my safety. I didn't judge her for it. From what it sounded like, she had a hard life before I came along. My mother was an enigma to most, a nightmare to some, and a joy to me. As far as nightmares go, though, there was no one she hated more than Bobby Harlow. She didn't waste a single opportunity to let him know that, either. We met in community college, the one thing my mother couldn't manage to keep me from. I'd managed to work pretty much everything out as far as my mother went, until he went and fell in love. He asked her for my hand in marriage, hoping to impress me. I wish to God he hadn't. I mean, yeah... The sentiment isn't lost on me, but who the hell does that? This entire, and I mean entire, situation likely could have been avoided if we just said fuck everything and married like everyone else did. God damn it, I wanted to hit him when I found out what he had done. You can imagine my mother's surprise. She hadn't even known I'd been dating anyone. Not only did she tell him no, she also threatened him, completely false of statutory rape due to him being two grades ahead of me. If she did call the police, they'd probably laugh in her face. Still though, it's not the type of thing to say lightly. Bobby certainly didn't appreciate being called a rapist just for wanting to get married. So we did what we should have done in the first place with the damage already done in spades. I moved out, leaving my mother alone and heartbroken Things went well enough until the sexual frenzied phase wore off. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I said or did something, and Bobby just up and left that day. He said whatever I had done was something identical to my mother. He said that thoughts haunted him all day long about our future together as an older couple, and me just pecking him apart like a crow to a rotting eyeball. I didn't hear much from him after that until eventually all contact fell away completely. I was left alone, with too much shame and embarrassment to go back home to the mother that needed me. Days turned into weeks that turned into months. When I woke up at 8.13, that fateful Wednesday morning, I knew something was wrong. The house was eerily silent, robbing all sound of its innocuous safety. My body was swathed in a sticky, cold sweat and I was surprised to find my heart hammering wildly. I hadn't awoken from a night terror, not that I recalled anyway. My muscles ached to spring into unknown motion for an event I wasn't yet aware of. It wasn't much of a shock at first when my phone rang. My mother's nurse Janet's voice drifted solemnly through the line. I found myself responding politely as if on a business call, completely emotionless. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The gravity didn't hit me until a moment or so after the line disconnected. I sank to my knees with heartbreak, allowing myself to succumb to the feelings. I hadn't thought about my mother dying much. And I certainly wasn't ready to accept it. After all, she was always larger than life to me. I always thought I would have more time. I fantasized about long overdue conversations and apologies that now I never get to experience. Grief and nostalgia brought out the brightest colors of our happiest memories, leaving the dysfunction to fall away to shadows in the forgotten night. I suppose that's the way it goes sometimes, though. It's the same reason women give birth more than once. You take the beauty out of the experience to forget the pain. Janet had come to the house at 7.30 to make my mother breakfast and administer her medication as she had for the last eight months. My mother would normally already be awake and in her lifting recliner by the time she walked in, except for that day. That day, Janet opened the door to a dark and silent house. My mother didn't have any pets. She never really had now that I think about it. I think it's something to do with the inevitability of her having to outlive them. She always demanded control over when people departed her life. (laughs) Imagine the irony in that. But she noticed an odd smell. She thinks my mother died on her way back into the bedroom from using the bathroom at night. That's when the dream started. It's only natural, right? I sure as shit had unresolved issues left over from childhood, along with 89% of the rest of the world. My hormones have been completely unbalanced, so that adds another factor. Finally, my mother just died. Whether we had a great relationship or not, the death of a matriarch causes some type of feeling. The oceans that were once our family had changed, sending ripples off in unknown paths with new patterns. I would be small and frozen, utterly paralyzed with fear contained behind bars. It took me longer than I'd like to admit to realize that I was in a baby's crib. My subconscious mind has shrunken me back to my younger days, stuck me somewhere between infancy and toddlerhood, and I felt absolutely everything. The dreams were always more realistic than things that happened in my waking life. Colors, textures, smells, it was all accessible to me. Eventually, I was even able to recognize the room I was in as the one we lived in when I was a young child the pink and white cloud wallpaper became covered in blood spatter as I watched the first shot tear clean through the side of my mother's face. Her body slumped over the side of the railing, over top of me immediately after and remained locked in place like a defeated afghan draped over the back of an old chair. Sputters and gags erupted through my tiny lips as tendrils of the dark hair I once was so in love with trailed down my throat. Frustration thrommed through my being as my brain sent orders that my body wasn't able to accommodate yet. My mother, the only caretaker I'd known, was in danger, and I was rendered powerless to stop it. And that bit you read earlier? That was no mistake. The attacker in my dream was a sentient doll. You know, the type that's heavily lashed eyes close when you tilt their heads back? Only it was fully functional. Each plastic digit moved separately, on inner command. It had a trifecta of curls painted below its hairline that bared a striking resemblance to three sixes, as cliche as that sounds. It's not that I was afraid of them, mind you. Everyone has mortal fears and silly ones. For example, it's much more reasonable to be scared of drowning in the ocean than it is to fear, say, frogs. Even the most mature mind holds the silliest of fears. My best friend Melody was always afraid of dolls and clowns, Now, being scared of clowns has become a valid fear, thanks to Mr. Gacy and the clown trends that came in the 2000s. But, besides being visually unsettling to some, dolls can't really hurt you. Also, I'd always wake up in a different place than where I'd fallen asleep. Whatever the reason, it all seemed to act as some kind of warning, a foreboding to something that was just out of my conscious grasp. But what? I'd never had recurring dreams before especially not one so vivid. Like I said before, my mental conditions were ripe for it, I guess. Still though, each time the dream occurred, a new piece of it would unfold. I'd been provided another puzzle piece of my subconscious in each subsequent dream. I found myself spending my waking moments disturbed, dreading what would be revealed next. Did I carry guilt for leaving her behind? Was that what all this was about? These types of questions plagued me all the way through her funeral. I held a stoic stance as they delivered the eulogy. It was odd to hear the pastor speak so much about my mother when he hardly knew her. Everyone's their best selves at church. My resolve was solemn but strong. That is, until they closed the casket lid. A sliver of her face remained visible from my vantage point just before the wooden tomb sealed around her. My stomach was seized with panic, and I found my heart rate increasing faster than I had time to process. Tingles invaded my sinuses seconds before I felt the tears come, and then I fell apart. Normally, I would have been embarrassed. I hate drawing attention to myself. But hell, I was her only living relative. It would look terribly out of place if I didn't cry. People gave sympathetic stares and murmured platitudes for healing, but I couldn't hear them. A kind-faced woman I didn't recognize swept me up in a one-armed hug. The gesture took me almost completely off guard. I was almost sure I'd never met her before in my life. Her other arm was at her side, holding the hand of a little girl, which, judging by her features, was undoubtedly her daughter. I backed away, after allowing myself an appropriate amount of solace in a stranger's comfort, and wiped my eyes dry as I gave the child a smile. I couldn't help but notice she'd brought a baby doll, even dressed it in black for Christ's sake. And guess which kind of doll it was? Go ahead, I'll wait. That's right. One of those rosy cheeked fuckers with the movable eyelids, only it seemed to be broken. The eyes moved completely separate from one another. As stupid as it sounded, the thing seemed to be winking at me, like it knew all about the night terrors and what they meant. Completely unhinged by the entire situation, my body began to shake. I sunk to my knees and clamped my hands over my ears as a scream of terror rang through the air. It was so loud that it hurt my own lungs. I didn't realize that I was the one screaming until everyone was staring at me. I shouldn't have done it. I know I shouldn't have done it. But I did. I ran to that darling little girl, grabbed her doll, and threw it into the open grave. A thud rang through the atmosphere as its plastic body hit the wooden lid. My feet raced around to the other side of the burial plot before her mother could stop me and began throwing handfuls of dirt and mud on top of the casket. My hands flew voraciously with hand after handful of dirt, determined to bury the damn doll where it lay. Eventually, two sets of hands were brave enough to grab me from behind and drag me away from the ceremony, where I collapsed gratefully in a fresh fit of tears. I spotted the little girl and her mother a ways off in the cemetery, and my heart sank with guilt as I watched the little girl cry hysterically. Her mother shot daggers at me as she ran her hand back and forth over her daughter's back in an effort to soothe her. I looked to the man on my right as I reached into the pocketbook inside of my purse and pulled out some cash. My fingers smudged brown along the crisp green paper as I handed it to the gentleman. Please, I pleaded softly give this to the girl's mother with my deepest apologies. I'm not well, and probably gave that little child a lifelong fear of funerals and graveyards. He nodded sympathetically as he agreed to my grief-laden request. I stayed just long enough to make sure he approached her, then spun on my heel and left. I was done with crying, done with all the people, done with the outdoors, done with all of it. The small of my back ached as I straightened up to assess the total clusterfuck that had once been my mother's clean living room. It was littered with things left behind from a woman who was the queen of sentimental hoarding. She could be eating out and see a pretty bird in the sky and keep a napkin from the damn place for the next 20 years. I'd almost filled an entire garbage bag with utter and complete bullshit when I heard the whimpers drift down from upstairs. A cold sweat of dread broke out across my neck and shoulders as I carefully ascended the stairs. This wasn't supposed to be happening, I thought in terror. Not now, at least. I froze in the doorway, keeping careful not to be seen while peering inside. I knew if I made my presence known and achieved eye contact, it was all over. The sounds grew louder as my stomach filled with the acid of anxiety. Nevertheless. I took a deep breath, thrust open the door to my mother's spare bedroom, and plastered the largest fake smile on my face imaginable. There she was, limbs jerking wildly as she struggled to figure out the complexities of her motor skills. Hello there, I cooed. Did you have a good nap, baby? I picked up my daughter Chloe tenderly, lamenting at how much heavier she was getting every day. Pretty soon, You won't be my little baby anymore, I thought sadly. Yep, that's right, I had a baby. I'd found myself in almost the exact same situation as my mother. Only Chloe's father was alive and well. He was driven away by enough hatred for mom that even the love and promise of new life wasn't enough for him to stay. And co-parenting would only increase the exposure to my mother's insults along with sealing the inevitability that he basically married her incarnate. That's why I thought I was moving rooms in my sleep. At first, I thought it was an unspoken maternal instinct. Maybe I walked in my sleep to be closer to Chloe. We had only been in this new space for a short time, and our rooms were vastly far apart from each other. I'm ashamed to admit, especially now, that I hadn't exactly told my mother very much about the baby. In some way, I'm sure she knew all about her, though. We lived in an incredibly small town, not far from where she lived. In hindsight, I should have just let her have her way. It's not as if Bobby stuck around, not that I could blame him. And if that experience taught me anything, it was that I did not need to be in a relationship. Another man was the last thing I wanted. Nope, Chloe had undoubtedly become my favorite person, just like I was my mother's. Even though I knew I wouldn't be all that she needed, she was certainly enough for me. But yeah, I should have just moved back in with mom, and we could have all formed a mother-daughter cult. Then everyone would be alive and happy, right? Please, God, somebody tell me I'm right. It suddenly occurred to me that maybe the dream signified something else entirely. Perhaps my own feelings of inadequacy as a new parent were bleeding into my REM sleep, like liquid into a paper towel. The following morning, I awoke with a start followed by an intense pain in the side of my neck and shoulder. It took me a few seconds to absorb the familiar surroundings. The pink carpeting slid between my fingers as I rolled onto my side. I had already dreaded the pain I knew would accompany my rise to my feet, but I guessed it was inevitable. I slapped at my forehead, surprised by a slight tickle an unwelcome bead of liquid caused as it rolled into my eyes. My vision was overwhelmed with patches of crimson as I struggled to wipe the mess away. Torrents of tears invaded my already wet eyes as I followed the trail of red across the floor to the corner of the room. The once-white bars of Chloe's crib were marred with red smears. Those eight steps across her room seemed to take an eternity. I began to choke on my sobs, unable to keep an even breathing rhythm through horror-robbed lungs. Gobs of spit flew from my lips as I started to scream. You see, in my dream that night, I had finally turned a corner. I was able to not only overcome my terrified paralysis, but beat the doll. I ripped it limb from limb with maniacal glee as the pops of an arm being ripped from its socket. I stared into the crib, expecting to see a jumbled mass of plastic. However, that's not what I saw at all. There was so much blood present that I could barely tell what was what. My mother always wanted to be the only person in my life. Ever since before I was born, it seemed that she was sure to get her way. It was supposed to be a dream. The conclusion to a series of terrifying nightmares manifested by unresolved feelings about my mother's death. Only the dream wasn't really a dream.
2: And the doll wasn't really a doll. or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: I hope you enjoyed Terror Nights, as written by N.M. Brown and voiced by Justine Anastasia. Justine Anastasia's work is available right here on our official YouTube channel. She also has written for the show, as well as being one of the judges for the 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition. Our second tale of the evening is written by Kitty Olson and performed again by Justine Anastasia. In it, we'll meet a nurse who is doing all she can to help her patients, but she suspects that they weren't exposed to your average chemical spill. Now, without further ado, I present to you The Failed Study of Nature's Mother.
0: Entry 1. To encourage the patients to keep up on their journals, Dr. Bryant has encouraged the rest of the staff assigned to this ward to keep a journal as well, openly. It's not too much of a trial, and if it'll encourage these patients to monitor their mental states and open up about the shared trauma they experienced, I suppose taking a few minutes out of my day to write is worth it. I am one of the nurses assigned to what we're calling the Enigmatic Hall, Enigmatic, of course, is the company responsible for the chemical spill at the campground that poisoned all these people out enjoying summer vacation. At least, it wasn't on a bumper weekend like Fourth of July or Memorial Day, but everyone in the area had to be taken here. Whatever was in that truck was potent, so even if they feel fine, they'll have to be monitored for weeks, if not months. Luckily for them, Enigmatic is footing the bill for all the care costs. I imagine they'd get sued to high heaven if they didn't, though. Around 20 patients require minimal care, showing no symptoms or signs that anything is the problem. They're not going to be typically under my supervision. Those poor souls need intense care to help them recover. Or potentially, just to provide care measures so they're not in agony during their final days. Unfortunately, a few were right at Site Zero where it happened. They're all in clean rooms. I hope that they'll all get to go home soon. For their sake, of course. How can I complain about my own life when it could be so much worse? Entry 2. I've started to get to know everyone. The troublemakers, of course, stick out the most. Yep, I feel awful for laughing. But one of the worst patients is named Karen. And she acts exactly how you'd expect. She was on vacation with her husband Barry and two sons, One of which is a college student, and the other is still in high school. And the way she's acting, she wants to be treated like she's at some high-class resort. I am just waiting for her to ask to speak to the manager. Still, I'm not overly affected by it as much as she complains. I used to work retail. I'm used to her type. And if there was a time to be a Karen, this might be it. I hate to admit being scared of a few of them, but one of the men frightens me, Elijah, I might be a bit naive, but I know what prison tattoos look like, and he has several on his arms and one on his neck. The one on his neck looks like a snake. He's loud, and he hasn't tried anything yet, but I still find myself shaking a little when I hand him his daily antibiotics and medication. At least he doesn't have any swastikas or other racist symbolism on him, at least not as far as I can tell. There might be some other tattoos hidden under his shirt. There's one patient I am getting along with, though. Kyra. We have a lot in common. It turns out we attended the same college simultaneously. Although we never shared classes, we probably bumped into each other in the past. She's so sweet, and she's doing her best to stay strong. Sadly, this trip was put on by her friends and twin sister. It was to cheer her up after her fiancé just dumped her out of nowhere. She asked me to check in on her sister Myra if I ever got put on shift there. I promised I would, although I don't think I'll be working there anytime soon. Enigmatic has hired many specialists to help care for the ones most affected by the chemical spill. She's the only one of them not in intensive care after the incident. Probably for the best. They know what they were carrying, after all, and that means they probably know the best ways to counteract the effects. I still might try to slip in there, though, just to check on Kyra's friends so I can soothe her worries. The worst part is always not knowing entry three I feel bad for judging Elijah off the bat he's hilarious it started with Karen loudly accusing Elijah of looking at her <clears throat> ahem her behind not the word she used but you can guess what word she used Elijah was hardly bothered and told her she was not his type quite frankly he proceeded to flip his hand downward and wink at her husband who laughed so hard I thought he was going to choke Karen sputtered, turned a shade of red I didn't think was humanly possible, and then proceeded to throw her cup of peaches at him. Elijah was fine, but Karen is restricted to her room for the day and apologizes to Elijah once she cools off. I got him a new shirt and confirmed that none of his tattoos were race-coded, at least as far as I know. I had a good time talking with him. He said he was bi, but the bitch wouldn't know the difference anyway." so he decided to mess with her for a bit of fun. He apologized to me for causing a fuss, even though she was the one starting things. Not a bad guy, Elijah. I've tried getting into intensive care, but I've not had the time. Not to mention the one time I did try entering, I was practically shooed away from the door. I was told I'd need approval from Dr. Bryant if I wanted to see any of the patients. Well, I doubt I'd be able to get that. I'll just have to be a little quicker next time. Entry 4 God, I don't know what to tell Kyra. I got into intensive care last night when there wasn't anyone watching the door. Each patient was kept in a separate glass room and... God, one of the men's legs looks charred, down to the bone. Fourth degree burn barely cuts it. But they're not on bed rest. With how severe their injuries are, They shouldn't walk around. Maybe some shouldn't even be alive. I don't understand that. The man I mentioned was charred down to the bone? He was frantically pacing across the room, gnashing his teeth and dragging his fingers across his scalp. I could make out more prison-style tattoos on the skin of his biceps that weren't burnt. He didn't even seem to notice me pausing to stare, even when he looked directly at me with eyeballs that were bleached white. I believe he was blind. It was the only reason I could think of why he didn't react. None of the other patients looked better or were being treated as I think they should have been. Some of the burns weren't as bad, but their skin was bubbling and cracking in ways that should have been agonizing. But instead of being kept on an IV, they were walking around their glass cells, their eyes blank white looking right past me. It was haunting. I was almost thankful I got caught. Dr. Bryant bumped into me while I was staring in the glass room containing a woman that was absent-mindedly pulling at her fingernails while staring at the ceiling. He only gave me a brief scolding, understanding my curiosity, but explaining that the other patients could not know about the condition of the ones at Site Zero. Mostly because, well, some of them don't have identities yet. And with the accounts they were told, there's one or two we simply don't have in either ward. Either they weren't at the campground when the incident happened, or worse. The catastrophic fallout destroyed their bodies. They were still exploring that site, and bone shards were found. He couldn't explain to me why they weren't acting like your average burn victims. The only hypothesis was the seriousness of the burns, along with the chemicals, destroyed their ability to feel pain. Their vitals were stable, each person was at almost no risk, but they didn't seem to respond to outside stimulus. It's like watching crispy zombies, still alive, but everything that made them a person is gone. I suppose the only thing I can do is lie. I hate the idea, but Kyra doesn't need to know that all that might be left of her twin sisters, pieces and parts scattered across the campground. No reason to confirm anything. Entry 5. A half-lie is still a lie, but it's not as bad as a full lie. When Kyra caught up with me today, I told her that the patients were all stable, but there was a long road to any sort of recovery. I didn't specifically mention her sister, and thankfully she dropped the subject. We ended up putting a puzzle together with Elijah. A few pieces were missing, but that's how it goes with a puzzle anyone can use. I'm already starting to wear out if I'm honest. Every day, Dr. Bryant has us give the patients a new battery of medications to prevent any side effects from the potential chemical exposure. I'm starting to wonder if they're worse off than they know. As a kid, I remember reading a book where a character drank a bottle of poison, and the only symptom was that they dropped dead after a few hours. Are my patients the walking dead? Entry 6 I got sick in the chapel today. I'm so, so embarrassed. So our hospital has a small nonspecific religious chapel that patients and family members are allowed to slip into so they can pray. I had a long day doing physicals for the patients and, although I'm not nearly the devout Catholic my mother thinks I am, I decided to take my break in the chapel. The moment I walked in there, I started to feel sick. I put it off to not having lunch and sat in the pew. I did notice the chapel was empty, which was bizarre. There's usually one or two other people in there, quietly reading their religious books or having their heads bowed in prayer. But today, it was empty. I supposed it had to be empty sometimes, as I took my seat. But the moment I bowed my head, my vision swam, and bile rose up in my throat. I swayed. I had to grab the pew in front of me to stop from sliding off. I closed my eyes to try to get a hold of myself and images flashed behind my shut eyelids. I saw eyes, lots of eyes, hundreds, maybe even a thousand different eyes, all blinking at different times and all of them staring right at me, right into me even. My own eyes popped back open as my stomach groaned and I knew I was going to be sick. I tried to get out, I didn't want to barf in the chapel. But I only got as far as the nearest trash can before bending over and heaving into it. Tasting my packed lunch again was as pleasant an experience as you'd guess. According to the nurse that saw me exit the chapel, I was white as a sheet and looked ready to pass out. He thankfully had the time to help me, assisting me to the nearest bathroom to gargle some water and see if anything was wrong. Honestly, I was fine after a few minutes. A bit shaky, but okay. I didn't have a fever, and although my stomach still pitched and groaned, it settled down after I popped some Tums. I wasn't sick. I probably just need to throw out the deli turkey in my fridge. It's probably gone off, and that's why I threw up. It's a bit old, anyway. As for the eyes… well, you always see strange things when you close your eyes too tightly. The enigmatic ward can't afford to lose a nurse. At least I could finish the workday. Entry 7. Something's wrong here. It was a typical breakfast. Elijah wished me good morning, Kyra asked for an update on her sister, and Karen was kicking up a fuss again. One of my fellow nurses, Marilyn, tried to calm her down. Something about not having a gluten-free option for pancakes, even though she'd never asked for anything gluten-free up until then. Really, just a regular morning. Then I turned my back for one second. And all hell broke loose. I heard a crash and heard a body hit the floor. I spun around to see Marilyn on the ground, everything from her head to her shoulders covered in food. Karen wielded her tray like a weapon, shrieking in rage about how Marilyn called her a bitch for the last time. Karen brought her tray down on Marilyn's back, hitting her so hard the plastic tray cracked right down the middle. Karen just threw the shards away and started kicking Marilyn, screeching like a wild animal as Marilyn curled up in a ball to protect herself from the insane onslaught. Elijah reacted first, jumping out of his seat and grabbing Karen from behind. He dragged Karen away as she kicked and screamed. Barry reacted next, jumping in front of his wife as he tried to calm her down. I ran to Marilyn's side and helped her up. I yelled to Code Violet and in seconds we had more than enough male nurses to handle Karen or so I thought. She had completely lost her mind. She screamed how we all kept calling her a bitch, that she just couldn't take it anymore and she fought like a devil. She ended up throwing Elijah over a table. How? I don't know. Elijah was over a foot taller than her and in a lot better shape. It took three nurses to hold her down and it didn't matter they were shooting her with enough sedatives to put out a horse. She kept fighting. Somehow, this five foot two, one 120-pound woman had found the unnatural strength to fight like that. After a hell of a fight, we got Karen strapped down to a gurney as she squalled and snapped her teeth at anyone who got too close. The blood vessels in her eyes had popped sometime during the fight, turning the whites almost crimson. She looked like a demon. No one has any serious injuries, at least. Marilyn had a cut on her forehead. Her back was bruised from where Karen had broken a tray over it. Elijah was banged up. Karen had bitten his arm while they were struggling, and one of the male nurses had a dislocated shoulder. I don't understand why Dr. Bryant insisted Karen be taken to the intensive care unit. She needed psychiatric help, but he was adamant. It's not the right call in this situation. I talked with Marilyn after she got patched up, and the strangest thing was that Marilyn admitted she was thinking about how much of a bitch Karen was being but she never said it out loud. She knew she didn't say it out loud. All nurses have had negative thoughts about a difficult patient. That's just human. She was better than that, we all are. It's just a strange day. Maybe Karen just snapped and Marilyn just happened to be thinking that. My head hurts. I blame all of Karen's screaming. Entry eight, things are getting stranger. I treated Elijah's bite wound right after Karen was taken away. It was pretty bad. Karen hadn't held back as she sunk her teeth into his skin. This morning, I came back in to clean the wound and change the bandages, and the bite's gone. I thought I had lost my mind, but Elijah was just as confused as I was. The bandage covering a nasty injury is perfectly healed, as if it had never happened. There's no sign of scabbing. There's a little dried blood and some strange green ooze that may be pus on the bandage itself, but the skin is perfectly healed. Even the hair's grown back. Enigmatic immediately had every sort of test run on Elijah. We took blood, saliva, and urine samples before running him through the MRI machine and taking x-rays. We haven't gotten back all the tests yet, but he's as healthy as a horse. He even admits that he feels perfectly fine other than the confusion of how the hell he healed overnight. I have no answers for him. I wonder if Enigmatic has any. Kyra tried to get into intensive care. I managed to head her off and insist that she didn't want to see anything in there, but she was pretty upset with me. I don't blame her. As far as I've been aware, they still aren't sure if her sister is even in there. Not to mention I don't want her seeing Karen. God knows what's up with her. Entry 9. Barry is dead. Karen killed him. I don't know how the hell he got past security, much less how he got into her sealed glass room. But within the 10 minutes the nurses left Karen alone, Barry got to her, and in return, Karen ripped out Barty's throat with her teeth. She took a few more chunks out of him, too. She's not mentally well. She might have been a handful, but she cared for her husband. Half of the fuss she kicked up she did for Barry's sake, she loved him. Claims that this might be a side effect of the chemical exposure, so she has to stay in isolation, aren't doing anything for me. They're still keeping her in that damn intensive care. She needs help. Psychiatric help. Dr. Bryant assures me that they will have mental health professionals added to the roster, but I'm not sure if I believe him. I've never doubted him before. He's a successful doctor for a reason, but nothing about this seems right. I don't envy the person who had to tell Karen's and Barry's kids that their father is dead. And it's because he broke protocol to visit her. Entry 10 I saw my mom die of cancer when I was 13. She'd already come back from it once, so we thought she'd just do it again. But the relapse was far more aggressive than her initial bout with it. She faded away in months. My father was the one who insisted on a closed casket. Even though she was technically still whole, she barely resembled the person she was before the disease ravaged her body. It was like a punch to the gut when I gave one of the patients a physical and found a lump. Skye Monroe is a teacher. She's upbeat, a real go-getter. The worst part about being in isolation for her is that she can't go for her daily runs to burn off all this excess energy. But she didn't let it break her. She instead came up with fun games to play with the younger crowd and would push all the tables in the meal room to the side so the kids could play tag or play relay games with empty pill bottles. She'd made it to a hundred. She's a real trooper, the picture of perfect health. But this morning, during the physical... She mentioned that she felt something on her lower back while showering. Possibly a pimple, but she asked me to check. I did. It wasn't a pimple. It's a growth at the base of her spine about the size of my thumb. I don't know how it grew so quickly, but it's there. We're performing a biopsy and I've assured her that it's likely benign, but that's a lie. This is likely the first we'll see of cancers resulting from the accidental chemical exposure. There are not that many people here not in the grand scheme of things, but they're still people. They had plans, life goals, things that they told themselves they'd do later, things they never got to do because they never had the courage. Now, whatever future they had planned, it's been ripped away from them. I look into the lounge room where someone put Bambi on the TV. Elijah and Kyra are playing checkers. They're laughing. Perhaps if they'd met anywhere else, they'd end up falling in love getting married, and living long, happy lives together. The kids, the youngest one is barely nine. She wants to become president someday. She told me while I was taking her blood pressure a few days ago. The elderly couple, Robert and Agnes, should be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year. I want to pray that they all get to have their dreams, that since we caught it early enough, we'll be able to head off any cancer or sickness. But every time I bow my head, I feel sick. The words catch in my throat like there's a hand around my neck strangling me to silence. I can't get anything to come out. So I just sit back up straight and try to tend to the patients the best I can. I don't want any of them to die. Please, if anything is listening, don't let them die. Entry 11 I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. Enigmatic is the one running the tests on the biopsied lump, and they aren't telling us anything. I want to scream. Sky is being patient, but I'm fucking not. This is insane. We should have the results by now. At least a yes or no on cancerous cells present. But nothing. No good news, no bad news. A woman is waiting to hear if her life is over, and they're just jerking us around like it means nothing. I'm this close to talking to someone above Dr. Brian's head about this. This whole setup is starting to feel like bullshit. Patients having psychotic breaks, or not knowing that their sister is possibly dead, or being forced to wait and wait and wait to hear whether or not they have cancer. This is a mess. Maybe to them, it does mean nothing. Entry 12. I've copied all my previous entries into this new notebook. The journal keeping my thoughts will now only be telling the people above me what they want to hear. But just in case something happens, I need some sort of evidence. I believe the enigmatic personnel and Dr. Bryant have been reading my journal without my consent. I left it at my workstation. I didn't think that anyone would care. This morning, Dr. Bryant took me aside. Nothing he said I could take him to court over, but I don't take kindly to veiled threats about my future as a nurse if I don't just suck it up and pretend everything happening in the enigmatic ward is par for the course. Nothing here is right. Right now, I'm a fly on the web. They're keeping an eye on me now, but I won't back down so easily. I'm trying to get a hold of Skye's results, at least to give her an answer about the lump in her back. It's expanding, and has a hard, grayish shell forming over the top of the skin maybe it is cancer but maybe it's something worse I'm not going to rest until I have the answers Entry 13 Kyra knows I finished my rounds when I was grabbed from behind and dragged into a broom closet the door was slammed after me and I was cornered by both her and Elijah I thought for a second she might tear my heart out with how angry she was but how can I blame her I lied to her I didn't mention that her sister was potentially MIA, which she is now, officially. All the patients have been identified now, and none of them are Myra. I couldn't apologize enough. I felt horrible. But I was forgiven, only because they needed my help, though. Kyra managed to get into intensive care. She saw the patients all burnt. Only now, their flesh, their skin, it's growing back. Their skin is still black, with a thick gray ooze dripping out of the worst injuries, but it's no longer the texture of charcoal. They're healing. Somehow they're healing, and I don't know what to say to that. They're still acting like there's nothing wrong with them, and Kyra even talked with one of the patients, a close friend of hers named Zoe. Zoe wasn't acting like herself. She claimed that Myra was safe because she was with Kyra, and she spoke of the one in the basement level, Zoe called her mother, said she was all of our mothers now and that she was trapped. When Kyra told me about mother, I swear the room tilted. I felt faint, dizzy. For a moment between blinks, I thought there were eyes. Eyes everywhere. On the walls, Kyra and Elijah, even sprouting from me, blinking, staring, all black eyes. Elijah caught me before I fell, and asked me if I saw them too. The eyes, I'm not the only one seeing them. The patients have been seeing them for a long time now, only some don't go away when they manage to blink their vision clear. The eyes are on everyone, even people just working in this wing. For me, it's on the tips of my fingers, the palms of my hands. I'm trying to do everything I can to trigger my vision of the eyes again, but it's not happening. My hands look normal, they feel normal, but I know they're there. I need to find out more about Mother. It's up to me to find out. Entry 14. There's something in the basement. Elijah and Kyra were right. I didn't manage to get in. I was already too close to getting caught, but there's a door leading down to the basement. Until now, that was the way into the morgue, where the bodies stayed before their families came and got them but I checked the paperwork. We shipped all our bodies out to other hospitals. We haven't taken any other bodies in. Officially, it's been closed for cleaning. It's been that way since the chemical spill happened, which I don't know was a chemical spill anymore. Elijah told me what he saw, a team of heavily armed men walking into the woods the evening of the incident. They were going after something or perhaps someone. If I squint enough, I can see the eyes. Dr. Bryant is concerned I'm having migraines, but I brush him off by pretending to swallow some pain meds. Thankfully, he seems to buy that my other journal is legit, that I've accepted that I'm just stressed, and that I just need to care for my patients. More symptoms are showing up. Thank God, not for Elijah or Kyra, but other patients are changing. Robert and Agnes are both yellow despite their liver function seeming normal. I did hear a strange story about several pounds of carrots vanishing from the kitchen, but I always thought that was an urban legend. The little girl I said wanted to be president, her name is Jennifer. She keeps losing teeth. Like, not the way little kids do. I mean, she spits out teeth and there are no gaps in her gums. She has too many teeth and they're getting sharper with each shedding. I don't notice anything wrong with me But there are whispers about some of the other staff showing strange symptoms, cravings, insomnia, mood swings, all of which are being brushed off as stress from the long hours. There's also the whole aversion to the sacred thing, which is why I think I haven't been able to pray again, ignored. We're part of the experiment now because that's what this is an experiment. Karen got out. Holy fuck she's not human. I didn't even realize it was her at first. I looked down to hand Kyra the right pills. I heard a scream, and when I looked up, I saw this creature. Eight feet tall, skin stretched so tightly over its body it cracked and tore in several places, but instead of blood, it oozed black. Its eyes were so wide it looked scared, and it was crouched as it watched the room without blinking. Its jaws stretched open, unfolded and peeled back until it covered its face, the flesh unfolding like flower petals and revealing rows of spines and teeth. Then it roared and charged. I nearly wet myself. I couldn't even shout for help. It charged through tables, throwing them out of its way like they were nothing. A nurse that got in its way was given the same treatment and he hit the wall with a crack as loud as a gunshot. It skidded to a stop just a few feet in front of me. Its mouth folded back, closed, and I finally recognized those stretched eyes. And I recognized the face protruding from its chest, even if its expression was one of terror. Karen's clawed hand raised in the air. Barry's smaller hands reached up to hide his eyes. Elijah tackled the disturbing chimera before it could kill me. He slammed it into the ground, holding it down until one of its claws shot up and sliced open his throat. I only unfroze when I saw Elijah's face go chalk white as blood poured from his neck. My whole vision went red, and I attacked Karen with my bare hands. I don't know how I did it. I'm not even a fighter or that strong. But when the fog of war cleared, the monstrous Karen was curled up on the ground, groaning a bloodied mess. I was soaked in gore. Barry's head lay in my lap. His eyes flicked around as he seemed to struggle with what was going on. Kyra took Barry's head and hid it under a table before security arrived. Elijah claimed he was the one who beat Karen to a pulp to save me. His throat was fine, but he was still drenched in blood. Blood they assumed was Karen's, not his. I still don't remember, but they'll check the cameras soon. They'll see that I somehow took down Karen. If they do, I hope they tell me. The eyes are everywhere. I see them on the ceiling. And when I close my eyes, I see them staring back at me. I hear mother's voice. I think we all do. Karen was trying to go to her, but she was confused. Barry is being hidden and taken care of by Kyra. We all know now that this isn't a chemical spill, that this isn't anything remotely made by man. Her children are perverting, mutating in ways she did not guide by keeping mother here, We're not right. We won't be right until her chains are taken off. We'll go to mother tonight. We'll set her free. Entry 16. Elijah started the riot just on time. He made a joke about doing this all the time while he was behind bars, but I think he was lying. The other patients joined in. Some of the nurses did too, the ones who are hiding their extra eyes. In the pandemonium, I headed for the morgue with Kyra, Thankfully, all the enigmatic security was upstairs handling the riot. We got in easily. Mother was chained to the wall, and she didn't look so good. To be fair, I don't know how she looks when she's not under heavy drug protocols, but she is not someone who wants to be on her knees. Her black form oozed, and that is not right. She is meant to stay whole. Kyra and Myra are her favorite children. It turns out when Mother was attacked, she lashed out, exposing us all to her gifts and power. Myra would have been turned into nothing, but instead, she joined Kyra, like how Barry joined Karen except, well, less cannibalism and a much neater meld. If I squint, I can see them overlapping each other. They're very similar, but Myra is taller, her hair is in twists, whereas Kyra's is cropped short. Mother can't get out on her own. But if Kyra takes her in like she did Myra, we can all get out of here alive. Enigmatic doesn't like letting go of its guinea pigs, but they won't have a choice if we are all one. I am writing this to say goodbye. Just in case I can't be free after this, I'll be forever bonded to Kyra like Myra is. There's always a chance it'll go wrong. I love you, Dad. Take care of my siblings. But we need to leave now. We're not one of you anymore. We are something unknown, something more. We are the children of the wild's mother. Entry 17 It's been a few months, and I'm mostly leveled out. I feel mostly like myself. Not drunk on Mother's Kool-Aid, so to speak. I can barely grasp what she's meant to be. It's beyond human understanding, and I'm still mostly human. Physically speaking, just my hands are different. After Kyra spat us all out back at the campground where all this happened, the transformation had officially taken hold, and it only took a few days to finish. The flesh on my hands is peeled back, braiding around my wrists like macabre bracelets. To a casual observer, it looks like my hands are just bones. There's still something tying them together. I can move them as quickly as before, and the sensation is mostly normal. I still sometimes jump when I look down. Other than Elijah... I'm the most normal out of the escapees from the enigmatic ward. He still looks human, except his eyes being slightly too bright, his teeth being just a touch too sharp, and, well, the fact that he can quite literally take anything thrown at him and walk away with nothing. We run errands into town at times, drop off letters to family members, pick up some snacks that campers don't bring often enough, get new clothes for the ones we grow out of, Barry's the one who's grown the most he's practically a human again, even if he is much shrimpier than he used to be. He and Karen renewed their vows before the cavern mother hidden. She's recovered well, but she's still seething with rage about what Enigmatic did to her, and I think she's not quite done unleashing her revenge on them. We're not either. We're laying low and might do it for years. They've come looking for us, but they've never found us. And if they get too close, well... Karen handles it. And if Karen doesn't handle it, Kyra and Myra do. They've never been able to separate. Myra was quite literally disintegrated when Mother lashed out, but they've worked something out. Every other day, they switch who's in control, and their body changes to reflect which sister is at the front that day. I do still prefer Kyra. She's more easygoing. But Myra's a lot of fun to hang out with. She's just a touch more morbid with the enigmatic goons she catches. Good lord, I'd much prefer being ripped limb from limb by Karen. We didn't intend on becoming a family. Our plans in life didn't include being mutated and changed from humans to whatever we are now, but it's okay. We'll survive, live, and be happy. Then, when enigmatic least expects it, we'll be back. And this time, It won't be just a few dead security guards that they'll be covering up.
1: I hope you enjoyed The Failed Study of Nature's Mother, as written by Kitty Olson and also performed by Justine Anastasia. Author Kitty Olsen's work can be found throughout our YouTube channel and podcast episodes, as well as on her author profile with us at creepypastastories.com. Just search for Olsen in the search bar, that's O-L-S-E-N, to find more of her terrifying tales and ways to follow her on social media. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight. And remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. A very happy belated Mother's Day to you all. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. (laughs) Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.